This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. One thing Bunker listeners can't get enough of is the catalogue of misdeeds of our elected lords and masters, the Conservative Party, the government that we love to hate, or indeed simply, the government that we hate. But why are they so successful? And how? Why do we keep voting for them? And why do so many of us who complain about them for years on end still keep coming back to support them at election time? Here to shed some light on all of this is journalist Samuel Earle, whose new book is Tory Nation, How One Party Took Over, a scathing insight into the Conservative Party over the centuries and how it got here. Samuel, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you for having me. Samuel, I should start by asking, what is it that makes the Conservative Party so powerful, so successful? Yeah, so maybe it would be good to start with, you know, just the stats, uh, because I've been a, a journalist writing about British politics, yeah, for many years, but it was only after the 2019 election that I looked into the history of the party's winning record, because I was very struck by the kind of commentary that was happening at the time of the 2019 election, and the celebration of, you know, Boris Johnson being this amazing vote winner who had achieved this incredible feat of winning an election. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn was this, you know, the, the worst uh, leader ever in Labour's history. And then I, I looked back at the, you know, what are the winning records of the parties? And actually, I found that across the Conservative Party's history, they've had 19 different leaders contest an election, mm -hmm. and only four have ever failed to win one. And then I looked at Labour's record, and it's actually almost the exact opposite. They've had 19 leaders in the last 120 years, which is about their lifespan, and only four have ever failed to win one. And and, and as of as the time of the next election, it'll be you know Tony Blair will be the only Labour leader in the last 50 years who has won an election. And the moment I saw those numbers, I just thought. How do these numbers make sense in a democracy? Yes, and you're quite stark on that, actually, yeah. in the book about how the Conservatives have actually been in power about two-thirds of the time. The yeah, exactly. Century. And, yeah, you know, these seem more like the odds of a rigged casino, I'd say, <laughs> than, a, than a kind of functional democracy. And over the course of writing the book, I the book actually became much more about democracy than I had initially envisaged mm -hmm. because it was... One of the things that I really learned while researching it is just how much the Conservative Party has shaped Britain's democracy in their image. And what how that has happened is it, it does in a way come down to the basic fact that, that Britain hasn't had a revolution. And because Britain hasn't had a revolution, it's democratization has happened through concessions from the government and from the ruling class. And all those concessions have, on the one hand, granted new powers to the masses, but they have also done so on terms that always advantage, as much as they can, the rulers at the time. And so I think that is a big reason why the Conservatives can still win 
Yes, so and that was built into quite a lot of, say, imperial history around mm. at the time. It was said it was a strength of Britain, the idea mm. that we didn't have a revolution, we peacefully changed, we had things like the Great Reform Act. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Great Reform Act increased the number of voters from 2% to 5%. Mm. It wasn't actually that great. And yeah. You have things like that that are always bits of piecemeal change. Mm-hmm. Your book talks about the idea of surrender to survive. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the it, it touches upon what I was just saying there. I use the phrase surrender to survive. I, I, I use similar phrases or like similar meaning expressions, such as like, you know, admitting defeat also being sometimes the best form of defense. And how do you concede power while consolidating your power at the same time? And Again, there's, I think this is very relevant to today when we talk a lot about the adaptability of the Conservative Party. And I think that is one of its defining traits. One of the reasons why Britain didn't have a revolution. You know, we like to say it's because of British character. We're just polite, moderate people who prefer stability to change, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the big reasons is is down to the Conservative Party. It's down to Britain's ruling class, which which learned from the mistakes of other ruling classes on the continent, particularly in France. And they saw that they couldn't just keep the masses at bay. They couldn't just complete denying people the right to democracy. And they needed to, in a way, surrender to that demand if they were going to have a future. Yeah, I mean, um, someone like David Cameron is a very clear example mm-hmm. that comes through, you know, this sort of touchy-feely liberal conservatism, at least when he's in opposition, mm-hmm. promising his way into power. But that's nothing new. It mm-hmm. seems that actually, uh, going back centuries, conservatives, you know, you talk about uh, how Lord Salisbury, the 19th century prime minister, used to make a habit of, of supporting reforms he didn't believe in at all, just to stave off even more reforms. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I think my favourite example of the book, actually, and it isn't even discussed in one place, it's more threaded throughout is the House of Lords and how it has survived. Because the House of Lords is an anachronism. It's completely unique, pretty much, in the modern world. It seems to go against the grain of just like liberal democratic society in so many different ways, and yet it's still here. And if you kind of trace its evolution, I think, so you had Lord Salisbury, in the, the who's the third Marquess of Salisbury. And the Salisbury is always a has been a big family within the Conservative Party history. And he described himself as, you know, the last conservative in the towards the end of the 19th century because he was he just thought that the odds were stacked up against the he Conservative Party. He was very Party gloomy. So much. He tended he was, to he was civilization very, was about to end. And yeah. He was the last person who'd, you know, <laughs> take a stand against yeah, reality. He was he was a big figure within the current of like Tory pessimism. And anyway, you know, cut to 1945, which is the first time that Labour win a working majority. And the Tories are are terrified. It seems obvious that the House of Lords, a hereditary institution where the Conservative Party kind of essentially has a permanent majority, would be abolished. And the the Lords, which is that point, is led by the fifth Marquess of Salisbury, strike a deal with Labour, where they say, instead of fighting you, we will pass every all of your manifesto promises as long as you agree to let us stay. And, you know, that that's a, a great illustration of their readiness to concede power where necessary. And, and Labour, you know, they, they probably go, okay, we'll let you hang around for now. We've got other more important reforms that we can pass through. 
and we're probably going to be in power forever now. So, you know, the laws can wait. And, and that Salisbury Convention still holds today. And it still holds But today. you mentioned the fallacy that Labour has during that time, which mm -hmm. is, well, we've sorted out winning elections now. We don't need to worry too much about this. Um, we'll get around to this. And lo and behold, Labour yeah. doesn't. Spend it doesn't, and then it isn't for another. And then in 1951, Labour lose, and they they don't come back into government for another 13 years. And it isn't for another 50 years that the Lords is actually reformed by Tony Blair. And even then, the reform is done in a very peculiar way. You know, it definitely hasn't been democratised to any extent. Well, a cynic might say that he said, "Well, the problem here is that the place is absolutely stuffed with hereditary peers who are." Three quarters conservatives. Mm -hmm. Let's just abolish all the Tories, <laughs> which is what yeah. they do. Yeah, and they never actually get around to doing the stage two. That exactly, and and I think that my favourite part of of Blair's, you know, actually failed reform. The the main premise of which was to remove all hereditary lords. But Tony Blair, in in this quest, comes up against a very familiar foe within the Tory nation. It's the seventh Marquess of Salisbury, who is now campaigning against Blair to, to trying to convince Blair to keep at least a hundred just because it would smooth the transition within the Lords and that if Blair doesn't agree to his terms he will he will cause constitutional mayhem and so Blair you know probably similar to his 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 labor ancestors agrees assumes that you know they won't last long and lo and behold there's still 85 hereditary peers I think in the House of Lords. And it's very interesting to look at how the House of Lords has been a bulwark for the Conservative Party, mm -hmm. because um, if you go back to an earlier constitutional face-off before the 1945 one, the mm -hmm. one of 1909 to 11, mm -hmm. where basically you have Lords versus Commons, the country stops its government machinery pretty much for 18 months. Back then, the purpose of the House of Lords was very simple. It was whenever a Conservative government's in power, it's there to rubber stamp all legitimate bills, etc., that come through. Whenever a liberal or other party is in government, it's there to veto mm -hmm. and stop them and, and try and block them at every stage. You would get from that sort of face-off, the um, the Parliament Act, which sets up exactly the struggle you're talking about yeah. in 1945, which is really interesting because since then, there's been a sort of identity crisis of what the House of Lords is for. And I mean, my view is actually, if you look at 19th century constitutional theorists, they used to say, well, the House of Commons is full of these professional, experienced people at the mm -hmm. peak of their careers who bring all of that experience to bear. And the House of Lords is full of disinterested people who, you know, they're there by accident of birth, so they, they haven't asked to be there. And that's a brilliant thing because they are, you know, the right sort and they, they have our national interest. Now, because that purpose had been so comprehensively demolished for the House of Lords, they've now latched on to the old rationale for the House of Commons. They say, oh, well, we're very experienced people at the peak of our careers who bring all this expert knowledge. And the flip side of that, arguably, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is how the House of Commons has done such a really poor job of what it's supposed to do that it's allowed the House of Lords to take that on as a rationale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely something in that. I also think, though, you know, that the House of Lords is always having to just try to find ways to legitimize itself and it will have to change its you know strategy of legitimization based on how it's appointed and the house of lords is also when we talk about like the democratization of of britain one of the things that allows the conservatives to kind of make their peace with the idea of democracy was the awareness the knowledge that they always had the house of lords as their kind of safety check that the, you could you could democratize the House of Commons, but we would always be able to ultimately maintain some control through this permanent majority 
in the House of Lords. And I mean, in some ways, I, I do think that Britain's always had a kind of remarkably open aristocracy in many ways. It, it's it's very old and enduring. But unlike other other countries, it wasn't purely from birth. It was also one of the other things that has allowed Britain to evolve peacefully has it's been its ability to absorb new elites into the old elite. So you could absorb the industrialists into the aristocracy and they you could give them their, their country mansion and let them kind of live that lifestyle. And so there was never a clash between the big landowners and the big capitalist bosses in a way that other countries saw. And so in that sense, there was always this sense of if you were uh, rich enough or talented enough, you could you could find your home in the Lords. Mm. And what's interesting is that Tony Blair's performance it still maintains that idea that if you're rich enough or successful enough or kind of threatening enough to us, you immediately have a right to legislate, to, to, to wield power over the legislation of this country without the need to be elected. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And the book does have this chapter on uh, question of whether we are a conservative nation, mm -hmm. whether there's this thread of deference running through the British people. I, I think you're sort of fairly sceptical in some ways about that as an all-embracing argument. I have a lot more time for it because... Um, I'm not British. I'm Swiss. I just live here. <laughs> and I can tell you, you are one hell of a deferential nation. Yeah. Um, and this idea that it could be you, that, you know, of course it makes sense to have something like an honours system because charity and good causes, and we all like good people to be rewarded for hard work and all of that. And I think this idea is actually very deeply embedded in the British psyche, and it is something which the Conservatives understand really well, mm -hmm. the amount of, even if it's very limited, the amount of buy-in that people who might say, well, I don't like the Tories, I don't like what they're doing, but, mm -hmm. you know, I like some of the institutions we have and I like the certainty and I like the fairness in all these sorts of ideas. Yeah, I, I think you're right that it is a, it's a huge feature of the kind of British English or at least English character. One of the small kind of themes I discussed in the book is is this idea of deference and also what the what kind of purchase it have has over pop culture, not just in Britain, but also internationally and in many ways it's like embodied by the ideal of the butler who is like always has to be english and there's there's a great quote in one of kasuo ishiguro's novels uh, remains of the day where the butler in this like big fancy estate called stevens he he says you know a butler has to be english no other kind of country in the world has the qualities of like stoicism that are required for the role and kind of composure and it's true you know in, in whether it's in batman or the the fresh prince of bel-air the the butler is always an englishman and it's something that it, that it seems to say that no one can be as at home in hierarchies and be in as happy downstairs as upstairs as an english person so long as they feel like they are belonging to something noble 
and dignified. You know, where where does that kind of fit in within conservative rule? I think because of Britain's identity as an old country, there is a kind of deference to the ancientness of British history as, as something that is uniquely British and therefore that we must treasure and respect. And, and because that history and tradition are so wrapped up with hierarchy, the greatest embodiment of which being the monarchy, mm. there's this almost conflation of respecting tradition and being at home in hierarchy. And if you're at home in that level of hierarchy, it requires this degree of deference to both tradition and hierarchy. And I suspect part of it is also not just that history and tradition, but this idea that we remain undefeated. You know, Mm -hmm. we haven't lost the major war since 1066 is the argument. And so you compare that to countries like France was invaded in 1870 Mm -hmm. and again in 1940. Germany had some terrible things happen there, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got countries like Spain and Portugal, which were fascist dictatorships well into the late 20th century. We don't have that experience. So as a result, we often look with quite rose-tinted spectacles, I I think, at at the country as a whole. I love watching the like all the British war films. And, And what are the stories that we tell ourselves about the Second World War and the First World War? And you know, the the two biggest ones that have come out in recent years were Dunkirk and 1917. And, you know, Dunkirk is obviously one of, you know, Britain's greatest national myths. And but it's quite an interesting one because it's it's not about military conquest, it's or savior. It's about retreats and it's about defensiveness and protection. Mm. And I think that tells you something about the yeah, the English psyche. That it's, and, and the it's, caution. Caution, for sure. Mm. And I think 1917 gets spoken about much less, but it's also a really interesting story because the entire story, the, the entire plot of that isn't, again, conquest. It's about calling off an attack. And again, there's this sense of like, mm. the Brits don't get their hands dirty. We're, we're always restrained and we're always just protecting ourselves. And... I think that idea, you know, it doesn't completely equate. It's not like if you enjoy those stories, you vote conservative. But I think those stories feed into a a kind of national atmosphere that works in the Conservative Party's favour. Now, to try and get really to something at the core of the book, you talk a lot about the Conservative Party being first and foremost a vehicle for power, holding on to power, being very effective and ruthless at that. But um, beyond that, what do you really want to say about what conservatism stands for or sees itself Mm. as standing for? Well, it, it's it's a very difficult question. It was it was one of the the hardest questions to answer in the book. Is is what do conservatives believe? Because because of their, you know, readiness to surrender to survive, because of their ready to concede aspects, it's, it's, it's very difficult to establish what are its principles on which it will not budge. And, in, in a, you know, and, and conservatives also don't like to see themselves as ideological people. There, mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a, there's a Cameron quote that I'm not an ideological person, I'm a practical one. And you know, I, I do try and show what ideology is still going on within conservatism. But I, I actually, I increasingly think that conservatism is a very practical ideology because its ideology isn't based around principles as it is as much based around preserving and restoring old forms of power, traditional forms of power. And 
to that extent, that's not so much a principle as a goal. And different kind of strategies can be adopted towards that effect. I mean, traditionally, I think that's held very true. You know, the conservatism of Burke, Disraeli, Macmillan, this flexibility, the idea of we'll do whatever it takes. It's in the national mm-hmm. interest. Thatcher rather blows that out of the water, surely, because Thatcher really introduces American-style ideology mm. of Hayek and Friedman. You know, what was the joke from the 1980s uh, from the religious right? If the good Lord had meant us to be consistent, he'd have never given us Milton Friedman. <laughs> um, and this, there's this tension between... Yeah believing stuff around free markets, for instance. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who hold that view, but I, I do actually very mm-hmm. much disagree with mm-hmm. that view that, that Thatcher represented a harsh break within conservatism. And it's it's very it's very interesting to see how Thatcher saw her mission. And for many people, they, they saw Thatcher as this aberration. There had been this general kind of one nation conservative spirit that had been going on where, you know, Labour and the conservatives still disagreed on a lot. But there was a broad consensus about taxation, wealth distribution, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Thatcher comes along and says no and and does bring dynamite to that consensus. But what Thatcher's argument was, was that that consensus was the aberration and that actually what she was doing was not a revolution. It was a restoration of an older form of conservatism and and, um, Hayek very much felt the same way that there wasn't a sense of creating a new new set of principles and a new set of ambitions it was about returning to to what the conservatives were supposed to be about and 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 Keith Joseph he wrote a book you know in in, in the 70s it was called reversing the trend it, it mm. wasn't about building something new for them it was about undoing what they saw as the damage of the post-war mm-hmm. consensus and when I kind of encountered that perspective, it, it was actually really helpful because I think we see conservatism in a way that precludes radicalism and that precludes destructiveness. And so you look at the Brexiteers today and you say, how could you possibly be conservative? You, you've, you've taken dynamite to this, you know, quite peaceful status quo that was you know working okay by by many accounts and to cause so much uncertainty but actually again the brexiteers don't see themselves as revolutionaries they see themselves as like uh enacting a restoration of a pre-eu britain Mm -hmm. and that distinction between radicalism in pursuit of creating something new which no conservative would ever really abide by and radicalism in pursuit of restoring an older political arrangement, I, I think that's really helpful to understanding the Conservative Party. Yes, and is there something to be said about how parties in any time tend to portray themselves in contrast to the alternative? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, for example, is if you look at the Conservatives in the 19th century, they weren't that interested in property rights, frankly, partly because they actually represented not the very wealthiest. A lot of the liberals were really very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they represented small landowners and things like that. But the minute you have a Labour Party rise up mm-hmm. in the 20th century, suddenly conservatives are really strong on we must defend capitalism, we must mm-hmm. defend property interests and these sorts of things. Or more recently, you know, I was struck by the sudden newfound interest in tackling anti-Semitism when Jeremy Corbyn became mm-hmm. leader from people who've been 
conspicuously silent in many cases about this for many years. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, that, that concern for anti-Semitism, it seems to exclusively confine itself to Labour anti-Semitism. Now that Corbyn's gone, the, a lot of the discussion has, has died down as if, you know, we have slayed Corbyn and with him, all anti-Semitism within Britain. And you see it, you know, you see it with trans rights as well. The, the Conservatives have, you know, I, I don't know if they've ever really campaigned on the platform of women's rights. And now you often hear Conservatives say, we are standing up for women's rights against trans people. And and it's a, yeah, it's a new turn for the Conservatives. And, and I think they're always trying to find new ways to absorb opponents' attack lines. And, you know, we won't get bogged down in the anti-Semitism crisis, quotation marks, um, under Jeremy Corbyn. But I think there was a sense in which, you know, the Conservatives are traditionally seen as the party of prejudice, the the nasty party, the, the party that stigmatizes minorities. And they relished the idea that they could flip that onto Labour and take the moral high ground on, on these issues. And they've often done that throughout their history. There's a great quote you use in your book, which is, uh, when a regime has been in power too long, when it has fatally exhausted the patience of the people, and when oblivion finally beckons, I'm afraid that across the world you can rely on the leaders of that regime to act solely in the interests of self-preservation and not in the interests of the electorate. That was Boris Johnson writing in the Daily Telegraph in 2011. To wrap up, what what do you make really of the last sort of 13 years we've seen of Conservative Mm -hmm. rule, how that fits into this? I think, you know, that we have seen many different mutations of the the Conservative Party in a very short amount of time. And I think what's been most interesting about it is how it has completely shattered the Conservative Party's self-conception as the the party of, of, of stability, of kind of wise, sensible government. And yet they have kept on winning. And and, and that was really the the dissonance between those two things was really what led me to write the book. And, you know, how can the Conservative Party seemingly be such an agent of chaos? And yet, you know, it's a very different picture now. But between 2010 and 2020, the Conservative Party won four elections in a row, each one with the largest share of the vote. It was getting increasingly popular, despite you would probably say Britain's situation getting increasingly worse. I think there have been opportunities where the, the Conservative Party actually could have, you know, for example, Brexit, I think was an amazing opportunity for the Conservative Party that it has benefited from, but I don't think it has taken full advantage of to reset. Theresa May, initially, she, you know, spoke the language of One Nation, but none of the policies really changed. Then Boris Johnson came along and and the same thing kind of happened. There was like in Johnson, we had a One Nation Tory, but, you know, austerity just has, has continued and whatever urge Johnson would have had to to turn on the spending taps mm. was it, for, for whatever reason. And it probably had something to do with who funds the Conservative Party he, he, he resisted. And again, then after Johnson's resignation, I think uh, with the Queen's funeral, there was another opportunity to reset. And there was another opportunity for a conservative leader to come in and say, actually, the last 10 years have been really difficult. I can can see that we need a new social contract. But actually what has happened at each stage is they have basically doubled down on on their economic policy. Mm -hmm. And instead of being able to offer 
any economic alternative. They are just turning increasingly towards culture war, uh, which isn't, again, a new aspect of the Conservative Party. They have Mm -hmm. been very good at sowing division in pursuit of power for, you know, throughout their history. But the, yeah, you just feel that there's these increasingly desperate lurches towards culture war that are born out of an inability to, to, to pursue a new economic course. Samuel, it's been fascinating, and um, I wish there was more time to go more into this, but thanks so much for joining me down here in the bunker. Thank you for having me. Samuel's new book, Tory Nation, How One Party Took Over, is available in all good bookshops. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting us to make shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, and the latest series of Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch, fresh from Kiev. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tabor. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.